The views expressed on this show by guests and the host on issues outside of the 9-11 controlled demolition evidence are the opinions of those individuals alone and do not necessarily reflect those of architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth. Welcome to 9-11 Freefall. I'm the host, Andy Steele, and today we're joined by none other than Dr. Niels Harrett. Uh, Niels Harrett is a retired associate professor of chemistry at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark. He headed an international team of scientists, and they published a paper. It was called Active Thermitic Material Discovered in Dust from the 9-11 World Trade Center Catastrophe. That is a mouthful, but the revelations from that paper really changed the face of the 9-11 event for so many people around this world. And it's uh, the basis for a lot of our work and outreach here at AE 9-11 Truth. Most of this audience knows him already, so I don't need much of an introduction here, but let's go ahead and add him to, into the stream. Niels, welcome back to 9-11 Freefall. Hello, Andy. It's wonderful to be here again. Well, thank you, and thank you for coming back. It's always enjoyable to have you here on the show. First of all, I know a lot of people are going to be tuning in because a lot of people love you uh, for the work that you have done, and uh, not just with the, the nanothermite paper, but just going out and speaking about this evidence, uh, doing what you can to raise awareness over in Denmark. Uh, I'm always aware that we may be picking up new people along the way. Somebody might just woke up to 9-11 last week. Uh, so just remind our audience about your career, uh, you know, your academic career, your credentials, and what you were doing before September 11th with your life and your research. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big chunk. My friend, well, I started study chemistry in 1963. I was employed at the universities gradually in the early 70s. I served as associate professor for 40 years until 2010. And during the course of that work, I did a lot of teaching. I did a lot of research, published more than 60 papers in various fields. My key expertise is within the interaction of light and molecules. and. Uh, but um, what happened in relevance to, to this broadcast here is that I got involved with Professor Stephen Earl Jones in uh, what late 2007 that must have been and uh, teamed up with him and some other scientists on uh, a work that he initiated on some chips he had found in the World Trade Center dust. And after 18 months, that led to the, this paper you described before, coming out on April the 3rd of 2009. And that changed a lot of many things in my life in particular, <laughs> definitely. Up until that point, yeah, up until that point, of course, I have been completely aware of what happened on 9-11, basically, 
it was controlled demolitions. But the, the, the option, the, the possibility that I could contribute by doing what I had been do doing for 40 years, this is very basic analytical chemistry. And, and contributing to this, to this work was a great honor and credits should go to Professor Jones for initiating this work and carrying out most of it on Brigham Young University with Jeffrey Farah. And I wish Kevin Ryan to be mentioned here in the same breath. Right. Actually, one of the first people I ever saw speaking out about Building 7, I mean, the person that I would go to at night when I was first getting into this and just having my mind blown by the fact that all of this evidence existed, um, and I'm not hearing about it on the television set, was Dr. Stephen Jones. That's the name that I would type in. Yeah. And, you know, over the years, I've obviously been involved, and sometimes I go on little tangents. I look up what people did before they got involved in 9-11, and uh, he was publishing a lot of stuff. And it's funny how when you, you step forward and speak out about this, it's almost like uh, all of those institutions and media and such don't care about the work that you did beforehand. I mean, somebody could cure cancer uh, tomorrow, and then if the following week they came out and said, you know, I think they should reinvestigate 9-11 again, and the science doesn't make any sense. I mean, yeah, that person would be, would be thrown under the bus by the system and it just goes to show you how afraid they are of it. Um, again, I don't, we're not gonna spend a lot of time talking about old topics, covering old ground here, but to give a basis to any newcomers, talk a little bit more about the nanothermite and the work, or the nanothermite paper, I should say, uh, and the work yeah. that went into coming to these conclusions and what that conclusion was. <clears throat> But these were some findings in the World Trade Center dust. You can, if you take a microscope, you can identify some very small, we call the red-gray chips because they're flat, the gray on one side and red on the other side. And uh, the discovery basically was that some of the, these chips, or we could recognize, were still reactive. That means when you, when you heated them up to 430 degrees centigrade, they, they went off. And that is the key observation, the reactivity of these chips, because ordinary paint doesn't do that, or anything else would not do that. Being in a in a high rise, you know, they've been fireproofed. Everything being in a high rise has been is fireproof. So, um, and then describing this material as to the best of our. our or the best we could, eventually led to the conclusion that it was composed of what we call termed nanothermite. Taking the thermite part of it first, I should mention that it is a it's a reaction, it's a chemical reaction, which is old. Actually, it was presented to the world the first time in 1893 by a German chemist called Hans Goldschmidt who discovered that if you mix a pulverized aluminum and pulverized iron oxide, which you may call rust, would work the same. Uh, if you heat them up, you, it takes off into a very, very violent energetic reaction. And in that reaction, you, you produce elemental iron, 
in a molten state because it's more than 2,000 degrees centigrade hot, 2,500 degrees centigrade hot, which is very, very hot. 1,000 degrees centigrade beyond the melting point of iron. So the energetic released in this reaction is enormous, and that is the key, actually, maybe to understanding the rest of my, my talk here. But the reaction is also very slow. So for 100 years or more, it could be used only as an incendiary. That is for, for destroying other things by means of heat. You can cut steel by thermite, in particular if you mix sulfur into it and other stuff. You can cut steel beams without making any noise, you're just cutting it like a hot knife through butter. But with the emergence of nanotechnology in the 1980s, you got the possibility of making composite materials of nano aluminum, which are very, very small pieces of aluminum, and at the same time, use chemistry in, in nanotechnology, you make everything much smaller. And regarding thermite, it means two things. First, that you can, that the reaction becomes much faster. That means you're approaching the speed of an explosive. And you can tune the stuff to do other things. That is providing a pressure, okay? An incendiary produces only heat, while an explosive has produces a very high pressure of gas very, very quickly, so you can blow things apart. That's the difference between an explosive and an incendiary. So with what's the, the benefit of well, I want to ask you, what's the benefit of using an incendiary over an explosive if you're trying to bring a building down or cut well, through something? It, it, it doesn't make any noise. It's very cheap and it's very, very efficient and you don't destroy other things than, than the steel beam eventually you want to cut. An explosive destroys, well, you have, of course, you have you have charges which you can direct, uh, but uh, it's, it's noisy and it destroys other things. The incendiary is very convenient if you want to take steel beams down, but you can use explosives as well, and they're very cheap, RDX as an example, it's, but it's extremely noisy. Um, and it may have been used also in the demolition of World Trade Center. We know that explosives were used. That's one thing. But let me finish the thing first about the nanotechnology. Because when you when you when you apply the procedures and the tricks of nanotechnology, you can tune the reaction to produce a gas. You add other stuff. You can embed the, the iron oxide and the aluminum in a polymer matrix that is plastic, which can provide the thrust, the pressure. And you can tune the stuff so you can make an explosive or you can make rocket fuel, which is slower than an explosive. A rocket fuel produces the pressure to lift the rocket. Technically, it's called a propellant. So it is, a, it is a slow explosive. You don't want to blow up the rocket. You want it from, to burn from the surface, but it produces a thrust 
a pressure. It releases a gas, but does so very much slower than an explosive. So in then in nanotechnology, you can tune the thermite reaction from the whole range. On the one side, you have the, the incendiary. In the other side, you have explosives. And somewhere in the middle, you have various degrees of propellants of rocket fuels. And when we actually, when we did the nanothermite paper and we found what we only characterize as energetic materials. And energetic materials is a material which can do something, okay? And we found th these chips which took off, which were reactive and actually which, which moved. It's very difficult to see because they are very small. We are talking about the biggest one is a few thousands of a millimeter. Um, so, no, actually, no, up to a millimeter. We have some very big, fat chunks with up to a millimeter. But still, it's very difficult to see that they're moving, that they're providing a thrust. So, when the paper came out, it was rock solid. This was energetic material. It could do something. But still, it did not fit into the overall picture to me in 2009. Uh, because everyone was talking about this explosive material. No, not really explosive. And it's, but it's more than an incendiary. And it wasn't until 2011 or maybe a bit earlier when, when David Chandler showed some videos where he um, did close-ups of the fragments, the debris being thrown out from the Twin Towers. And you saw this white smoke trail. All the fragments coming out of the Twin Towers produces a coherent, homogeneous white smoke trail. And then it suddenly clicked, this is aluminum oxide. I, I forgot to mention before that the one product of the thermite reaction is elemental iron. But the aluminum ends up as aluminum oxide, which is white. And which is when you do the thermite reaction in the lab, which I did as a student actually, uh, you can see the white aluminum oxide produced as a white cloud over the over the part where you're doing the reaction. Um, so then it suddenly clicked, and then at the um, at the Toronto hearings in 2011 on the 10 years anniversary of 9/11, I took a deep breath and then suggested what we may talk about now a coherent, co consistent collapse scenario for the World Trade Center Twin Towers. Building 7 is a different story, which everyone can see is two different stories. But for the Twin Towers, there's been a lot of confusion, still is, about explosives and incendiaries, and where does the nanothermite fit in? And yeah, uh, Science. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but well, I was going to ask you about that because I want to establish nanothermite rate first, just for any newcomers, and just we're, I want to get into that whole scenario. And it's interesting how you describe it as taking a deep breath, 
because anytime you bring anything yeah. new to the mix, you know that, I mean, we have to undergo uh, more more challenges than most people in the scientific community. And I'm not a scientist. I just bring this information to, but to, to the audience. But the, uh, the, the people like yourselves who actually are at the ground floor of the research, you know you're going to be under a lot of scrutiny. And so it's almost like there, there's more pressure on you than um, just, you know, analyzing the properties of some new moss found on a rock. You know, you can put out hypotheses uh, on something bland like that because uh, and, and have it um, debunked or whatever the proper scientific term is. And it's not that big of a deal, but you know that the system is looking for any kind of weakness and any kind of theory now. Um, yeah. And so it makes it very difficult to have open dialogue without having to viciously defend it. Um, but with the nanothermite, yeah. you established that. that is science. Sure. <laughs> just to comment on what you're saying, it's perfectly right. Ask questions. That is science. That is que science is questioning science. It's to say trust the science. That is anti-science. And you know, it's very much around here now. Tr you trust the science. No, you shouldn't. <laughs> it's very anti-scientific, actually. Just a little comment here. Yes, ask problems. I, yeah, I trust very little these days, <laughs> science or otherwise. No, but, please um, do. Yeah. With the net, but with the nanothermite, have there been any serious? I know the primer paint, and the primer paint is ridiculous because uh, there's a video out there by another scientist where he does a side by side comparison of the red grade chips you're talking about and actual primer paint, and you can see that there's a thermitic reaction. From the red gray chips and the primer paint just kind of turns black and wilts um, or yeah. burns up um, <clears throat> but uh, have there been any actual serious challenges to nanothermite uh, in your paper over the years no no and i, I in in my opinion that must have been the best reviewed paper maybe in the history of science i mean imagine how many people have read this joe biden read this no, he got it in his hand and he read it. Yeah, he did. Joe Biden, it was, I can send you the video where he's reading it, Joseph Biden. <laughs> but I don't know how much he actually understood, but it has been read quite a lot. It has been reviewed quite a lot. And if it, and, and after 10 years, I start realizing that this is not going to happen. I mean, nobody's going to challenge that. Because they could have right. done that immediately. And you can buy any opinion out there. And unfortunately, now, now in science and universities, you can buy any opinion you want. Uh, and they haven't done that. So, so, so it, I, I'm pretty sure it has been very thoroughly reviewed. Oh, well, you know, they're looking for any opportunity they can to, to, to completely dismiss this. Um, yeah. So I, let's let's get into it. We've established nanothermite. Anybody can look this up and look into the history of this. But you do have a new theory, uh, or I should say hypothesis, or you can define it yourself if you want. But it's how explosives, thermite, and nanothermite were all used in the demolition of the towers. We'll start with, with the Twin Towers. Um, go yeah. into that for our audience. You got the floor. Let me first say that science is a set of data and observations and the best hypothesis explaining the observations. That is science. 
There's no truth in science. There's only the best model of the day. So what does it take to make a coherent and consistent model for the collapse of the Twin Towers? It takes three kinds of energetic materials. Let's take the explosives first. Very recently, I read this paper by Ted Walter about Sukin, uh, a woman who was there and her personal account. And it's a very moving story. And when you have read it, and I will recommend it to any, all of your viewers here, when you have read it, there is no doubt in your mind that explosives were abundant in the, during the collapse of the Twin Towers. And I will point to the very great work of Graham McQueen, who have collected also all the personal accounts of explosions on the day before and during the collapses. And third, trust yourself and just take a look and listen to the audio from when the towers are coming down. It's one gigantic roar of explosions. So there's no doubt that what we call explosives were used also as well. Now for cutting the steel beams, that's point two. You can see in, in, in before they started actually the cleaning, the clear cleaning of ground, ground zero. They waited until September the 19th to roll in the, the big machines so the New York City Fire Department could got a chance to walk around and find whatever remains of their colleagues. So and on these pictures, you can see how some of the steel beams were cut at an angle. Okay, here you have the steel beam and it was cut like that. Which means that it has been cut by, and you can, there are more details to it. You can see the molten iron on the edge of, of the cut, meaning that it has been thermate being used for that. That's a, a military variety of thermite reaction where you add some stuff, you add sulfur, and you can add a chemical called potassium permanganate or potassium chlorate to speed up the thing. The sulfur lowers the melting point of the steel which makes it much easier to cut the steel. And the uh, use of thermate with sulfur was demonstrated by a scientist on what was the Worcester Institute of Technology, Jonathan Barnett, or Barnett uh, who, who I think it was a slip because he got some beams from, this, from, uh, no, from, uh, from FEMA both from Building 7 and from the Twin Towers. And when he did what he cut the steel in extremely thin slices, so, so, so thin that you can put them into an electron microscope and demonstrate the occurrence of iron sulfide, which is the completely, what you call, unambiguous proof of application of, of third mate because that's what happens to the sulfur in the third mate when you cut the steel. And it's rock solid science. The third mate was used to cut the steel beams. So maybe not all of them, but the beams that he got from FEMA, both in Building 7 and the Twin Towers. So these are two energetic materials accounted for explosives. We don't know the chemical nature of the explosives used. 
it could be conventional, like RDX, what we call molecular explosives. I would do that. I mean, if <laughs> because the good old stuff, they it works. And then thermate, cutting the steel beams, also the good old stuff. And on top of that, uh, and that's where the nanothermite comes in. Because when you see the collapses of the Twin Towers, what do you see? You see a canopy of debris being thrown up and out. And as I said previously, they, all the fragments here are carrying a white smoke trail after them. So there is a thrust. There's something moving. These, some of them, 15 tons, being thrown 100 meters four times being thrown 200 meters out and there's so there's a thrust and it's going upwards and out this is not gravity obviously and and this but when when i saw these videos close up and i would david chandler should should be credited for this actually for making the snap and demonstrate that uh, connecting the dots really and then suddenly everything fits, right? Everything fits. Um, so you have a co coherent, consistent collapse mode model. If you assume, this I don't know, but somehow on the inside of the outer panels, you have you apply nanothermite. You can paint it on. We don't know how it was applied. And it doesn't matter really, because we shouldn't say what we don't know. But, but obviously it's being thrown up and out. What I believe is thrust provided by nanothermite. So, uh, and David Chandler, it was it was kind of funny because um, he was at the Toronto hearings as well. And we were sitting, I was sharing four beers with Kevin Ryan and Jonathan Cole and David Chandler and uh, and Chandler was a little bit, he was, he was skeptic uh, for my proposal because he, some, of, some of the fragments are actually accelerating faster than free fall. And he thought it was, was because they would, would start early. So he went back and did some new measurements of some of the fragments falling to the ground and came sorry for being a little bit technical but if you have an object falling free fall like this one it accelerates to the ground with 3.8 meters per second squared but what what chandler did he came back this, this is this is something falling from the south tower actually like this one and he did a calculation of the acceleration and came up with 11 meters per second squared. That is, it is falling faster than free fall. There is no way around this. You cannot fall faster than free fall unless it's a rocket being fired, it, unless there is a thrust, okay? If you throw something out from a tower, it can never go faster than free fall unless there is a thrust. So, and David tips his head and said, okay, but he provided the numbers and the brilliant videos and he should be credited for that. 
So we have now we have a completely consistent model for the for the demolition of the twin towers. Right, and you see these people from the other side who try to use one piece of evidence that something is not right about the fall of the towers on that day to try to refute another piece of evidence, and they try to get arguments going within the 9-11 truth movement, bickering over this or that, but there's no guarantee that uh, maybe both are right in this case. I mean, when you go to a crime scene, <clears throat> You don't ignore evidence. It happens in the justice system, unfortunately. But ideally, uh, the, what we try to live up to is that you don't ignore evidence. So maybe you find uh, at a murder scene somebody's DNA at the scene who shouldn't have been there. Maybe they were in, you know, in another state uh, somewhere on that day, and you can document that evidence that captured on surveillance video. But you don't ignore the DNA there. You don't ignore the fact that that person was in that apartment. You try to maybe clear the person <clears throat> if you really don't think that they did it, but you still have to look into it. So in this particular case, you find the evidence of nanothermite in the paper, but you've also got this explosive force shooting out uh, parts of the building in all these directions. I mean, both are evidence that we are being lied to about that day. So instead of everybody fighting over what they think happened, we should all be uniting around what we all disagree with on the official story and that basically uh, we didn't get the full story from our government, that something else is going on here because these buildings should not have come down. So I think it's very courageous that you're, uh, I mean, that you're looking at every aspect of it and you're saying that there had to be conventional explosives used. I, I tend to lean towards that myself and we don't know, we have to know everything that went on. All we have to do is prove that the official story is wrong to justify the government looking into that. And I think Absolutely. the 9-11 Truth Movement, collectively AE and others have done this to, uh, to my satisfaction and to justify this new investigation. Um, so we talked about the Twin Towers. Uh, talk about Building 7. Uh, what do you think was used for that? But maybe we should finish the Twin Towers. I have two comments actually sure. before we go to Building 7. And the one thing I, I perfectly agree with you that maybe we are spending a lot of time discussing the details because we are curious. But if you're standing Friday evening after work at the bar with your arm on, on the desk and you are into an argument with a friend about what happened at World Trade Center, I can wrap it up in 60 seconds because we we have seen here you we're talking about fragments being thrown up and out from everybody everyone has seen this billions have seen the collapses of the twin towers everyone has seen how how the uh, the, the 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 fragments is being thrown out and out like a canopy game over we're finished. We don't need anything more because according to the official narrative, it was only gravity working on the building at that point and gravity happens to be vertical. So if your friend at the bar Friday evening has some experience with gravity, he should understand at that moment the official narrative must be wrong. And then you and I get curious, but when now when it's wrong, how did it happen then? And that's that's where you come in as a scientist, but you don't need it. But in science, 
the theory can be wrong only once. It cannot be wrong twice. But unfortunately, real life, public life doesn't work like that. I mean, if if people has an, if somebody has an alibi, the audience or the jury wants 10 alibis. What, one is not enough. I mean, so you have to be guilty 10 times over before you're being convicted. So that is how the public domain works, and I'm perfectly aware of that, and that's why we're here, okay? But if you need, if you if you only have two minutes, I think the verticality of gravity is is the clincher. The other thing, uh, yes, a question you did not ask: Why about the twin towers? Why did they do? Why, why did they have it to do it this way? Why didn't they just blow up the thing, right? Good question. Yeah, and I have no clear answer on that. I can, um, I can provide some guesses, and, so, and some of the engineers from architects and engineers may actually, may, the first thing, a purely technical thing, is about the bathtub. You know, the World Trade Center was under the level of the Hudson River. There, there are seven floors underneath in the basement, seven basement floors, which are under the Hudson River. So, and there is a wall holding back the river, what you call it, the dam. And, and uh, so if you have, and the Twin Tower would be roughly 320, 30,000 metric tons each. And some people has has speculated now what would happen to the bathtub if you dump how much six hundred and forty thousand metric tons into it? And could it could it hold back the Hudson River? And if it couldn't, you would flood all the basements on the southern Manhattan, and Wall Street would be out of business. So so this was not supposed to happen. As I understand, actually, the wall moved half a meter or something, but it, it held back. It did not break. Maybe because by doing what we're suggesting here, throwing a lot of stuff up and out for the basement, you prevented eventually, it's a guess from my part, you should ask Tony Samboci or somebody else about this you prevented the flooding of the whole financial district. That's one thing. Another thing is we all have very much difficulties in finding out what is actually going on. The canopy of debris is like um, a blanket. You cannot see what's going on under the canopy of debris. You have to be... David Chandler has done this and see all the scripts coming out, floors under the crush zone. He, could, he, he is doing very, very much work, but basically you cannot see what is happening under the canopy of debris. So that's my reason number two eventually for doing this. And the third is shock and awe, because it is so overwhelming that we all went into shock. And if you are, when you're shocked, you cannot think. You believe that it was the airliners and Osama bin Laden. Until, and then six, six years after, and Stephen Jones come by with 
DVD and say, hey, did you hear about Dylan 7? And then, oh, well, so that's what it took. Another thing is the advent of YouTube and videos on the web, 2005. That was a turning point. So it was television which stopped the Vietnam War. And it was YouTube which maybe hasn't happened yet, broke 9-11. Well, I had a better shot of it than anything. I mean, you know, I always say this as if 9-11 had happened back in the 80s, we wouldn't even know what Building 7 was, most of us. It is definitely because of YouTube. And, you know, I came across this stuff purely by accident, purely by accident. Somebody snuck it into a video website. It wasn't YouTube, but it was YouTube-like. And uh, it, was, it was supposed to be a joke website. But, you know, I saw this video and my first thought was, this is not funny. Um, and then I was like, could these people free for real? And that's what woke me up. So it was like, it was, and when it wasn't just the video technology and the internet, but it was all of these people being so moved by what they were seeing and feeling this need to get it out there. And most of them, I would, I would safely speculate, you know, had no idea what their impact would be, or if they're going to even reach anyone, they all found each other. And that is how the 9-11 truth movement was formed. So there's something miraculous about that. Everybody collectively having the same idea um, and doing it and it just kind of conglomerating into this one entity. Um, so yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, just uh, great to reminisce about that. Um, so let's get to Building 7, the Building 7 okay. question. Um, because yeah. they, they were very different. Well, they're not collapses, but they were very different in the way they came down. Yeah. Very much. I mean, the Twin Towers was the top down, which is very unusual. But obviously, they, there was a way they, they had to do it to, uh, to, to blame it on the airliners. Uh, but seven is more conventional in the sense that it was a bottom up demolition. And this is what you do, obviously, because you want to use gravity to the maximum. Um, and and save on the on the on the charges on the explosives, but they didn't on building seven. They overdid it. <laughs> uh, they over, overkilled, obviously, because that building had to come down. Obvi all three of them actually, they had to come down. This is qu quite <laughs> fantastic thinking about the, the people in charge of these demolitions. How they were, I've often think about that Monday evening did they get any sleep so it had to come down so they're they're overdoing it and uh, very much has been said about this and very wisely so maybe I, I it's I there were no nanothermite in my opinion no nanothermite was used on seven this was only explosives and and uh, and thermate for cutting the steel beams one of the beams I, I referred to before, Jonathan Barnett, where he was showing the action of the mate was from Building 7. And he knew that because it was a special kind of steel which he could identify. Um, and then you also have explosives which are not very noisy. That is a thing coming up frequently. I've done 400 presentations on World Trade Center. And very often the question comes up, how about explosives on Building 7? Were there any noises? Yes, we all know that they have 
they have what you call it. Uh, uh, they have you couldn't get close to building seven, about ten blocks. But they had what you call it. Put up the police fences so you could not get close to building seven. So you couldn't hear anything. You only in the distance you could hear the claps and the charges. Still, you have explosives which are not very noisy, and incendiary incendiaries or third mate does not make any noise at all. But you can see obviously how the explosions or whatever it is going from the bottom up. You do a slow motion, uh, you can see how the charges are going from the bottom up. So it's obvious what is happening. One comment which I may want to, to, to make here is very often people are saying that for the, for the building to come down symmetrically, which to some faces actually is the key observation. Physicists are crazy about symmetry. It's like it's a holiness. Um, but but um, so, but it's coming it's coming down very symmetrically. In order to do that, many people say that you have to take out all 80, 81 columns at once. No, it's not true. Uh, you all, but you have to but the last fraction of columns you have to take down symmetrically. That's obvious, because because the uh, the building is overdimensioned. You have a lot of what you call it. Uh, um, you have excess. Um, there's a, there's an English word I'm missing now. There's, you have excess of, of the building is stronger than it has to be. It's called. Um, never mind. But so so you so there maybe there are five times more or five times more columns than this should be to hold the building at all. So you don't have to take all eight. There are 24 columns in the center, 57 columns in the perimeter. You don't have to take them all at the same time. All you have to do is remove the columns slowly and easily, take your time during the afternoon. But at the final low, where you take the last columns out, that has to be symmetrical. Of probably the core columns, they do, they didn't care much. Uh, so I don't know what is it called abundance. No. Um, never, nevertheless, you you got you got my point. And when did they take it down at five o'clock in the afternoon? This is personal, and you may have talked about other witnesses at this show having opinion about this. I think that seven should have come down roughly a quarter past the and nobody would have blinked and I think it failed. There, there are many, there are many um, uh, accounts of the uh, of, uh, explosions in seven in the morning after the collapse of the Twin Towers. So, um, so that's what I think. And then they had to take it down before the evening where everyone could see what was going on. So 20 minutes past five, and then it was scheduled to five. We all know <laughs> it was scheduled to five o'clock because this was what, what the BBC thought it was, you know. They were 20 minutes late. Yeah. Uh, now, what, was, what can I say? So much, so much has been said about it and Richard Gage has covered it so, so brilliantly. The free fall. Right. It's, and the implication of the free fall is that there is no energy 
for taking the whole steel structure apart because all the energy which was used to lift the, the 47th floor to 186 meters in 1987, all that energy was released in the freefall. So that's the conclusion from the freefall observation done by David Chandler, that there is no energy for taking the whole steel structure apart. Unless explosive was involved. And that conclusion is, is completely solid. There's no way around it. It's basic energetics. So it yeah, is. Well, it's a smoking yeah. gun. It's a smoking gun of September 11th. People have said that for years. I mean, I don't know how people can watch that building come down and, and at least not say something fishy is going on there. I mean, most people that I show it to who don't have some kind of agenda of defending America or being patriotic will say, yeah, yeah that, that was brought down for some reason. Even a debunker I was arguing with years ago, you know, we were arguing about every single point about 9-11. I got to Building 7. I didn't even know much about it at the time, the science of it. And uh, he said, well, that's probably just something we don't need to know about. Well, no, you don't get to do that. You don't get to just dismiss like a huge glaring problem with the official story and say, well, I, yeah, it was probably taken down for some reason. I don't know. But uh, who, who needs to think about that? We just trust the government. Uh, I want to get into Maybe another point that Larry Silverstein ad admits it in 2002. You know that famous interview with, with, right. with PBS. And he says, I remember getting a call from the fire department commander telling me that maybe they would not be able to contain the fire. And I said, well, we've had such a terrible loss of life. Maybe the smarter thing would be just to pull it. And they made that decision to pull, and then we watched the building collapse. The last part of it, the little then, you have to re-hear it. Please hear it again, and you can see, and then we watched the building collapse, because that's decisive. They made that decision to pull, and then we watched the building collapse. We watched the building collapse because they made that decision to pull. And that's the key to his admission, okay? It's a language. Well, yeah. It's a language. Now, the debunkers are I was going to say, the debunkers are going to say that, uh, oh, he meant to pull the firefighters out and they let it burn and that's why it came down. I mean, why wouldn't he say them out you know and it gets into us it gets into like why did he use this word instead of that word and so i don't talk about that much only because it gets into that sort of like speculation about this and, and they try to play this cover game but the whole thing is just utterly ridiculous uh the, the, the fact that this building can, can just come down like that and i mean ae 911 truth has already proven that uh there's problems with this story and the mistakes in their report i mean we're suing them right now for for God's sakes, and we've got the Halsey report completely refuting them. I mean, everything all added together just points to the fact that this building was brought down to controlled demolition, and no amount of spin can change that fact. Now, I want to make sure we get to this, um, but at the Justice Rising Conference, uh, you talked about the one-third diphenylpropane as the remaining mystery you would like to solve. Can you talk about uh, where you are at with that right now? our audience well i'm 
I'm no, nowhere really, but this is, it's a fun thing because this is how I got involved with Kevin Ryan and actually Stephen Jones, but, but at that time, mostly Kevin Ryan, because they submitted the paper to a journal called The Environmentalists, which I refereed, I reviewed. And, and uh, where they were describing some uh, emissions of gases in the month after 9-11 from ground zero, which are astonishing. This is official data. And, um, and it, so I was reviewing usually the referee knows the authors of the paper, but the authors in principle do not know who the referee is. But the referee has the option to address the authors if he has some substantial issue which can be settled without having to write a report to the journal. And this is what I did. And I think it's a good thing because usually you, you settle some issues and all, always you get a beta paper out of it. So I did that and actually uh, and in that paper, the first author I think is Kevin Ryan, but Stephen Jones is on there as well. And they describe emissions in the, in the month after 9-11, which are ridiculous. It's like vol volcano eruptions of chemicals which shouldn't be there. You know Ground Zero keep, kept burning officially until December the 20th, okay? But it, keep, it kept on smoking into January and February. They couldn't put out the fire for some strange reason. And they used thousands of gallons of water from the Hudson River. They used a synthetic uh, fire extinguisher called Pyrocool. They just couldn't put a lid on whatever was going on. And at the same time, all these gases was coming out, propane, uh, still being styrene, I could mention. But then one, this very interesting chemical, 1,3-diphenylpropane. So we discussed back and forth uh, what would, could be the origin of this, because it must be from some plastic, and we may have a key here. Uh, we never found out. We didn't agree. And uh, but the point said, I say, okay, uh, do the, if I suggested you do this and that, and then we submit the paper, and it will go straight through a uh, uh, review, and it, it was published. But in my opinion, we never actually found the, the missing link, which is the polymer of nanothermite, which still is still unidentified. And one reason, of course, is that we cannot find it anywhere else. That's one obvious thing. Because if you want to identify a material, you must have a perfect match with a known thing. Okay. I don't know if I can make an example. You can say it is this because I have the same thing over here. And one reason why we cannot um, put the exact finger on the polymer producing 1,3-diphenylpropane when it's being heated up, when it burns in the nanothermite process, it still remains to do that. It will take some work. None of us have capacity now. I'm too old for that.
Um, but it's intriguing. But that's how I got involved, actually, with, with Kevin. And then from then on, we, we went to the net. So it's interesting, yeah. It shouldn't be there. And every, everybody admitted also from, from the, what you call it, was a, the environment department taking care of emissions from the, it shouldn't be there. The other stuff you may be able to explain why it is there, not that it would come out in eruptions. There's no explanation for that. But some of the other stuff are, are more common. Not in these quantities, but it's not sensational. But one free diphenylpropane getting into this mix, uh, we, we, we never found a, a satisfying explanation for. A small, right. a small fraction could have come from the styrofoam cups, which you take an ordinary coffee from, but not in the quantities you see here. Well, it just goes to show you that the work is not done, the research work. And to me, the case has already been made. I mean, it's an open and shut case in my view. These buildings were brought down in controlled demolitions. If I need to be political about it to, to uh, push for a new investigation, I'll say at the very least it justifies a new investigation. But there's still mysteries to be solved out there for any enterprising researchers, scientists with the background, knowledge, and equipment to do this. And that is one of them. So uh, just, you know, for newcomers, and we've only got a few minutes left here, but for newcomers or people who have been doing this a long time and they say it's 20 years later, what do I need to care about 9-11 for? Uh, I want to hear just from you because you keep going strong. What keeps you hopeful? What keeps you in this fight and, and keeps you moving forward and continuing to uh, talk about this? People are waking up big time. Really, and and we all know that it's, that it's getting t tough and it's, it's serious now. But still, the the World Trade Center is the key to understanding because, as you said, it's quite up. I mean, it's so it's in plain sight, right? So um, I still consider nine eleven to be key to what's happening now, and it's it's this is the big one. You know, talking. I'm talking about wars. What's going on now is 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 a war. It's not an ordinary war. It's not a horizontal war. What's going on in Ukraine is a horizontal war, landscape war. But the real war is vertical. It's not France against Germany or Hindus against against Muslims or red against blue, north against south. It's top against bottom. And uh, so, so this is really this is the the big one. And um, but people are waking up in in what you say in doves and doves. And 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 nine eleven, in my opinion, is still key. And I can see those who, and I know at least where where I live, those who are driving the fight. Let's say the fight for freedom. Yeah, what it is, they woke up on 9/11. So that's that's why 9/11 is still relevant as all of the other things to open people's eyes, and it's so simple. So yeah, of course I'm optimistic, really.
we don't know what will come out on the other side and we have no word for it we'll have a word for it and i'm but i'm not going to say it if we lose this one there'll be no more wars to lose but so we have to win and whatever the resulting world will be there's no word for it. there's no word for it this is so speak as the renaissance 500 years ago but just going much faster so I'm confident, and it will be in my lifetime, and I'm pretty old. <laughs> well, Niels, thank you so much for the work that you do, uh, always, and uh, we'll look forward to having you on the next time uh, when it's appropriate and all of that. But thank you, and thank you for coming on 9-11 Freefall today. It's been a great pleasure. And please bring my regards to all my friends and architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth. Okay, thank you for tuning in, folks. Now, I've been saying in earlier episodes, send your suggestions to us. What I forgot to say last week was that we got new theme music, you probably noticed. That is directly uh, because of the suggestions and YouTube comments over the weeks. It was time to change it up. So thank you for that. If you have other suggestions for the show, we certainly want to hear them. Easiest way that you'll know I'll see it is go to 911freefall.com. There's a question and answer box right there on the page. Just type it in and uh, it'll go right directly to me. Or if you want to leave it in YouTube comments, you can. I don't know if I'm going to see it, though, because there tends to be a lot of them. And it's easy to just miss things when there's a lot of uh, other stuff there mixed in. So I wanted to get that in there. But thank you so much again for watching and uh, we'll see you next week. Bye bye.